But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father and our Lord Jesus when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Luke, thank you very much indeed. Friends, it's lovely to see you this morning. Uh, If you're a visitor, my name is James Ballinger. I'm the assistant minister here. And we're continuing this series in 1 Thessalonians. And so let's pray and ask for God's help as we begin. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father, we know that we have no right to come into your presence. We have no right to hear from you. And yet we dare to ask, because of your mercy, because of the grace of the Lord Jesus, that you would speak to each one of us for Jesus' sake. Amen. How would you fill this sentence in? Now, dot, 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 I really live. Now, dot, 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 I really live. Now, I finish my exams. I really live. Now I can take a holiday. I really live. Now the kids have finally left home. I really live. I wonder how you'd fill it in. There are some passages in the Bible that tell us exactly why they're written. The beginning of Jesus' famous parable of the persistent widow begin with these kind of words. He told them this parable so they would pray and never give up. Other times we're not told explicitly, but it's pretty obvious. A couple of weeks ago, as Paul talked about his boldness in sharing the gospel, it pricked our consciences, didn't it? And we we went away praying, Lord, make us bold with the gospel. But there are some passages, including the first half of our passage this morning, where the picture is so outside our experience, so unusual, that we're in danger of missing it. Even more so when, like this morning, there's no command, do this don't do that. Well, in verses 6 and 9, Paul and his team give a description of how they're feeling in response to Timothy's report from Thessalonica. There's no command. There's no imperative. There's just a description of their actions. And frankly, their reaction is so unusual, certainly to our Western ears, we are tempted to gloss over it. Have a look at verse 8. For now, we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. My life's going well, because all's well with you. I feel content, because you are thriving in the Lord Jesus. I'm flourishing, because everything's good with you. In our individualistic society, we don't think like that, do we? That kind of other person-centered relationships are very unusual. If you came to the great uh, church mission evening we held last Saturday... You'll remember we began with a quiz, and Jolene, our mission partner who works in Syria, 
told us that uh, they couldn't have a quiz like that in Syria because the Syrians would all help each other. They don't want one team to be better than the others. And we all thought that's quite funny. And, of course, for a quiz, that's fine. But in life, when we live in a situation where we're all trying to do one another over, it's not good, is it? And the first thing we're going to see, we're really going to spend 90% of our time on that this morning. The first thing we're going to see is how Paul and his team model true human relationships. They model true human relationships or, or model true human love. That's the human relationships we're created to have. We're going to spend 90% of our time on that, then we're going to spend two minutes at the very end on the last three verses. So don't worry when we get to the end of point one and you're worried about your whatever's in the oven. Anyway, I'm very grateful this week for the MP3 uh, team who, who put the sermons online. Thanks very much to Ollie and the sound team who do that week by week. I wasn't here last week, but I was able to listen to what Jay said. Can I encourage you, do make use of that great ministry. If you're out teaching the kids next week or, or you're away, do download the MP3 and listen. But if you were here last week or if you listened to the MP3, you'll know that Jay began by challenging us how we listen to the Apostle Paul. There are two tendencies, he said. On the one hand, to think that Paul's a bit of a charlatan. He's, he's harsh and demanding where Jesus is kind and gentle. And so people dismiss him. The other danger is to think that Paul is so high and mighty, he's a great saint on a pedestal, that we think we can never live like him. And so we, in a different way, for a different reason, dismiss or play down what he says. And Jay said, no, that's absolutely not the case. Paul is just like us. He's a sinner like us. And we can follow him, listen to him. Well, that's very important for this passage. Because what Paul says here is not the words of a super Christian. Not the words of a super pastor. This is what genuine human relationships were designed to look like. And as we look at this model... I hope we'll line ourselves up alongside it, line St. Stephen's up alongside it, and ask, how are we doing? We see in verse 6, Timothy's just come back to Paul from Athens. If you were here last week, you'll know that Paul sent Timothy away to the Thessalonians, the young church he'd planted in that city, and he was worried that the tempter would have got in and taken them away from the gospel. Paul and Silas were driven out of the town, and people, it looks like, had come in and said, why has Paul abandoned you? If he's genuine, he'd still be here. And Paul's worried that that accusation will have gained traction. Well, when Timothy comes back, he brings good news about the Thessalonians' faith and love. Remember, two of those marks of genuine Christians. But literally, this word good news is, is the gospel. He's evangelizing about their faith. It's the only time in the New Testament where this word isn't used for preaching the good news of Jesus. Paul is so thrilled. It's as if uh, Timothy's brought the gospel to him. And you see, it's their spiritual state that Paul's most concerned about. I take it that that's because that's ultimately the most important thing about us. If you've caught up with a friend, maybe someone you haven't seen for a long time, there's lots we want to know, isn't there? How, how are the kids? How are your relationships? How's work going? Are you still doing the same hobbies? And we'd be thrilled, wouldn't we? The kids are great. We've got a new promotion our neighbours not getting on so well. Whatever it is, we'd be pleased to hear the news. But I hope the thing we'd be most thrilled in is hearing that they're going well with the Lord or the thing we'd be most discouraged in if they said it wasn't going well. Because ultimately, that's the most important thing in life, isn't it? It's how we're going with the Lord that's the matter of heaven and hell. 
stand alone. I take it that Timothy probably brought back lots of news from Thessalonica. But the thing that Paul is thrilled with is their faith and love, that they're still going strong with Jesus Christ. And he then goes on, doesn't he? What pleasant memories you have of us, that you long to see us. I take it that's not that Paul's thrilled that he's still got a few more friends on Facebook. It's that he's thrilled that they haven't rejected him and so rejected the gospel. The tempter hasn't got in and destroyed them. But what impact does this have on Paul and his team? Look at verse 7. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. I think that makes sense to us, doesn't it? We might say something similar. Last week, I was preaching in Wollstone at Roy Martyr Church, the church that was planted out of St. John's Wollstone. And it was incredibly encouraging to stand with brothers and sisters who've lost so much for the faithful stand they've taken. They've lost absolutely everything. And the beginning of the service, I was slightly teary. It was deeply humbling, very encouraging. And Paul and and Silas say the same thing. We're, We're encouraged despite our persecution. Despite the fact it's hard with us, we're encouraged because of you. New strength to keep going because of you. But then Paul goes further. Look at verse 8. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of God because of you? Wonder, do you think it's easy to gloss over those words? These are not hyperbole. We need to take Paul serious. He says, I live Because you are standing firm in the Lord. This is a picture of true human relationships. Those that thrive because others are thriving. True human love that wants the best for those around. I wonder how you filled the dots in at the beginning. Now, dot, 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 I really live. Now I've got enough in my KiwiSaver. Now I've finally bought the house, so I really live. Last few weeks, we, we moved about three weeks ago. And I think almost every morning I've been woken up at half past four by next door's rooster. Well, wonderfully, yesterday the rooster was put in the pot. And uh, I woke up this morning and I was tempted to think, now I really live. (laughs) But whatever it is, it's so centered around us, isn't it? It's going well with me, so I feel like I'm alive. And yet we're designed for so much more. We're designed to be outward-looking, other-person-centered. And Paul and his team model that. Elsewhere, Paul says, to live is Christ. And I take it this is the other side of that coin. To live is Christ doesn't mean, as I think we're tempted to think it does, that if everything's okay with me and Jesus, my friend Jesus, everything's okay, then life's hunky-dory. Now, there's an element of truth in that, but it's much more, isn't it? To live as Christ means making Christ known, rejoicing that others are are coming to know him, sharing Christ, and rejoicing when others stand firm in Christ, that we stand firm with them together. I think I normally try and keep in the Bible, mainly because I'm not very good, I don't think it's doing anything else. But let me just take us out slightly, and we'll just do a little bit of theology. This is going to be slightly abstract, and I hope I won't lose you. But let's just do a little bit of theology around this, because I hope this will drive the point home carefully. Jolene, last week, spoke a little bit about Islam. And if you know anything about 
Islam, you'll know that one of the things that Islam does is reject the Trinity. Allah, God in Islam, is, is a unitary God. He's the one God alone. And yet Islam, or Muslims, say that God is love. But that kind of begs the question, if God is love, if Allah is love, who was Allah loving in the beginning? Because there was just Allah. Well, people would say, well, when he created the world, he, he was loving the world. But strictly speaking, that means that Allah became love, not that Allah is love. When creation was made, he began to love. Or that Allah was loving himself. Well, self-love is a kind of love, but we normally call self-love narcissism, don't we? But the Christian God is different. He's not a unity. He's not a, he's not a unitary God. He's a triune God, one God in three persons. We just sung the creed, didn't we? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And we see a hint of that in verse 11. Have a look down at verse 11 where Paul is praying, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. And we can't see it in English. But the word, the verb, clear the way, is a singular verb. It takes one subject, as if the Father and the Lord Jesus were the same being. Be like in English, saying, the Father and the Lord Jesus is here. Now, some of the youngsters might say that, but by and large, I think most of us would say, Jesus and the Father are here. Steve Jukes put his hand up, maybe he would say is. I think we normally say the Father and the Lord Jesus are here, but it would be is if it was one. And that's absolutely right. The Father and the Son, one God in three persons. And so we can say God is love, is love, because from the beginning of time, God the Father was loving the Son, the Son was loving the Father, a community of love. But of course, we all know that the love of two people can be inward-looking, can't we? We all think of someone who's fallen deeply in love, and the world around them is, is, is if, as if it's gone. They're just obsessed with each other. And there can be something nasty about that if we're not careful, inward-looking. But the Trinity is not like that. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and the Holy Spirit is thrilled, delights in their mutual love. It's not a love triangle where the Holy Spirit's jealous of the Father and the Son. No, they share in the love. And likewise, the Father loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit loves the Father, and the Son delights in that love. Our God is a community of love. Now, why have I just told you all that? Apart from the fact it's true. I've told us that because we're made in God's image, aren't we? We're made to show that kind of other person-centered love. That is who God is, and that's whose image we're made in. Human love is not self-love. It's not even cliquey love, love for two people. It's shared, communal love. We see something of that in verse 9. We see that Paul is thrilled in verse 9, isn't he? That his friends are standing firm. But he doesn't pat them on the back. Well done, friends. No, he rejoices in God's presence. It's a, it's a joy that overflows. It's an outward thing. And that's why I've called this point model human love. It's not just model Christian love or the model love of a pastor for his people. It's model human love, model human relationships. The kind of love we were created to enjoy the kind of relationships we're being recreated to, jo to, to enjoy, that the church should model. And what a wonderful picture it is. I'm not just happy because all's well with me. 
I rejoice when it goes well with you. And I'm most happy, most thrilled when your deepest need is met in Jesus Christ. It's that kind of attitude that means that Paul, in the midst of persecution and pressures, sends his best friend, his colleague, to Thessalonica for the sake of others. It's the attitude that causes someone to take time out of their busy day to phone a friend and encourage them in the Lord. That means that we reach deep in our pockets to give to the work of mission so that those the other side of the world can hear of this God. And when we practice this love, when the church is filled with individuals committed to practicing this other person-centered love, it is dramatic. So different to the world outside, the dog-eat-dog world, where the weakest are overlooked, where people who are odd are looked down upon. Someone was telling me the other day, I have a Christian at another church who is apparently always so pleased when others, when things go well with others. They rejoice when others are able to use their gifts, even if it means that they themselves are overlooked. They were asked to serve. I wasn't. I rejoice because they're serving the Lord. And yet, isn't the opposite so often the case? If others are doing well, it makes our situation feel even worse. I think if I was Paul and Timothy had brought this report back to me, I would have reacted like this. Well, that's great. What wonderful news from Thessalonica. But it's very, it's awful here. And you've just made me feel worse. Down in the dumps, grumpy. How opposite is, is Paul? I rejoice because all's well with you. Well, of course, we're tempted to react like that because our love is corrupted. Instead of loving others, we love ourselves. Just think of all those people on TV who celebrate how they've left their families. I've abandoned my spouse for love. I just had to be true to myself, love myself. That's not love. That's narcissism. And maybe at church we're not like that. We do try and love. We do try and put others first. But the danger is we we love those who are like us, maybe the same age or the same kind of set as us. And we love them dearly, but really others we're not interested in. Well, again, that's not genuine love. That's a clique, a set. Well, we've seen the model, the model of genuine human love. How do we stand up next to it? How does St. Stephen's compare to Paul and his team? If we're weak in certain areas, we need to talk about them. I take it there's no good going home and, and on our own thinking, well, we're not very good at this or that, because love is by nature a community project. We need to talk to each other. We need to ask the Lord together for his help. And maybe there are some who are thinking, well, that's great, but that's the great Paul. We can never do that today. Well, yes, we could. This love of Paul points us to the Trinity, points us to our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in whose image we are being remade. Think of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who so loved the world, their enemies, that they sent Jesus to come to die on a cross not for his friends, for his enemies and to redeem us from our sin. We're going to celebrate that in a few moments at the Lord's table and as we remember that love, as we celebrate that love, as we come more and more to know the Lord Jesus so we're changed, we're enabled to model that love which we're being the love of the God in whom we're being recreated let's not despair This is something for us that God is creating in us.
will model human love. And then very, very briefly, Paul gives us a model of prayer. There are various models of prayer in the Bible. I take it that the Lord's Prayer is probably the chief of them. And that's not to say we can only pray like this. It's it's almost an example of how we can and should pray. And in verses 10 to 13, Paul prays for three things, all of them revolving around faith, love, and hope, those three great marks in Thessalonians of genuine Christians. The first is for faith. Verse 10, Paul prays night and day that he may see the Thessalonians again. Why? Because he wants to fill up what is lacking in their faith. And then in verse 11, he breaks out into prayer. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Now, isn't that interesting? We've just had a good report about their faith. And yet Paul prays to strengthen it, to fill up what is lacking. I take it that means for each one of us, however mature we are, there are gaps in our faith, either in our knowledge, things we don't know as well as we could, or in our practical faith, that is our trust in the Lord in various areas. And we need to pray and help one another. I've been reflecting this week how so often in our small groups, if your small groups are anything like the ones I've been part of, we're very good at praying for circumstances, but not for the person in the circumstance. So we pray, uh, I'm feeling quite tired. I've got a rooster next door. Please get rid of it. That's been my prayer request for three weeks, as some of the young adults will know. We've got a lot on at work. Please pray for it. My boss is a pain in the neck. Please will you pray for it? But we're maybe not so good at praying for the person in the midst of the trial. I'm really tired. Will you pray? I'm not grumpy, that I can trust that Jesus is my Lord and and not give in to irritability. I've got a lot lot on. Will you pray that I'd have the faith not to be grumpy and, and grumble? My boss is a pain. Will you pray? I've got the faith to turn the other cheek. Are we praying for our faith? Well, that's faith. Then verse 12, for love. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. That's the kind of love we've just seen, isn't it, that Paul and his team model. Overflowing, not just to the church, but to the whole world. I don't want to say anything more about love. Except to underline, do you see, it's not a human thing. It's a God-given thing. Something we can't drum up on our own. So we need to ask God for it. Ask him to give it to us. And then thirdly, verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. This encompasses so much, doesn't it? He's praying that they would grasp the gospel deep down in their hearts, that is to say in their inner beings, that they get who Jesus is for them and so live blamelessly. And I take it the link to hope is this reference to the return of the Lord Jesus with the holy angels with the believing Christians on the last day. And he's praying that they would so get hold of that fact that one day Jesus will return. One day he will judge the world and set it right that they live in the light of it, that they be blameless and holy. They deny themselves. We sometimes say, don't we, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded, they're no earthly good. It's a clever kind of witticism. But it's utter nonsense, isn't it? Someone who's actually heavenly minded, who gets that the Lord Jesus is going to come back, makes a huge difference here on earth. They're able to deny themselves because they know they've heaven to enjoy the things of the world. They're they're able to, to live in the light of the fact they'll meet their king. He'll judge them. And so they live in a holy 
and godly way. Well, here are three things to pray. We've asked the intercessors in, in church to be praying each week more deliberately for the other churches in the diocese that we're building so we can be partnering together. Sometimes we have news, please pray for Latimer's, Christianity Explored, or for Trinity's, whatever they're doing. But sometimes we don't know. Well, here are three things to pray. Pray for their faith, their hope, their love. Let's pray that for St. Stephen's, both for us individually and for us corporately. We have a tremendous model of love. Let's pray we can live up to that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the great love you've shown us, and we long. Would you strengthen our faith? Whatever is lacking in our faith, individually and corporately, please supply it. We pray that you'd help our love to increase and overflow for one another and for all the whole world, for those around us. And we pray, please strengthen our hearts that we would be blameless and holy on the day when your Son, the Lord Jesus, returns with all his holy ones. For his glory's sake we ask. Amen.